0: Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of the Leaders and Founders podcast, um, brought to you by Gathered and Found. Um, I hope you're all well. I've uh, got a very, very good episode for you coming up. Um, we were lucky enough um, to speak with the CEO and co-founder of Ably. Now Ably are a tech company that provides cloud infrastructure and APIs, which um Sort of build features in real time, so features like chat, notifications, live maps, that sort of thing. So, um, very very um, cool company. It's pretty much a, a tech company for technologists. Um, and I was very lucky enough to um, speak to their uh, CEO and co-founder Matthew O'Reardon. Um, Matthew's a great guy. He's really really easy. To Speak to and this, and this is particularly an interest to me because this is a company that I've probably been personally following for about a year and and, and seeing them, you know how much they've sort of grown, go in, go through their funding, and you know I, I just think it's a very good um, product that they've got and it's a very good sort of business model. Um, and, and as you say, Matt, Matt's a great guy, so easy to speak to, very down to earth, uh, and he's got a really interesting background, um, you know from making, building computers, um, you know, back in the 90s in in South Africa um, to founding, you know, a very, very successful consultancy called e-consultancy, which he built from scratch and successively sold um, before then moving on to, um, you know, co-founding Ably um and the successful journey that you know they're continuing on at the moment so you know this is a really good episode for those who've either got their own companies or just starting to, starting thinking of you know starting their own business particularly in tech Because um, you say we we learn a lot about you know what it takes to get there and you know we we're looking to what it's like to go through funding and funding rounds and, and pitching to investors um and also we learn a lot more about Abley um themselves and, and what they do it's 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 an episode I, I really really enjoyed and i hope you do too thanks for listening hello everyone welcome to season three of the uh, leaders and founders podcast um hope everyone's doing well um, still in lockdown, uh, pretty much we've, we've, we've been doing this from, uh, from lockdown of last year, but um, things are looking a, a little bit more on the horizon, so I do hope everyone's well. Um, got a really, really good guest um, for you today. Um, he is the co-founder um, and current CEO of uh, real-time tech company, um, Abley, uh, and that's Mr. Matthew O'Riden Welcome. Hey Tom. Nice, nice to meet Matt. you. Yeah you're good Thanks Thanks for having you. me on the show. Uh, no no thank you uh thank you for coming on uh really really appreciate it um I think this is going to be a good one particularly I mean for us and and for our listeners just with um how I believe have been growing as you say I've I've been sort of tracking you guys probably for the last year um and just seeing some really really cool things that you guys are doing but I think they're great uh, a great insight into um, particularly the fact that you, you guys managed to go through funding, you know, how you've built this company yourself and, and obviously a bit of a, a background as to how you got there. Um, so just, just for our listeners who don't know um, or have never heard of Ably or what Ably do, if you could just give us a, a bit of brief about obviously your role there and obviously about your company.
1: Yeah, sure. um, sort of as um, as you said, I'm the co-founder. Um, I am a, a programmer at heart, um, and uh, myself and my co-founder both were quite instrumental in the engineering of the product. But I am now the CEO and and, and increasingly less involved in the technical side of things. Um, but as a business, we're um, I mean a deep deeply technical business, in that we provide technology to developers to build um, build applications and. Um, really, what we do is we provide a platform that allows them to um, to do real time communication with devices. Um, so if you think of things like we, you know, we power things like chat, um, live updates, and maps. Um, uh, a lot of gaming, uh, remote collaboration, collaboration. So things like, I mean, obviously, everyone's heard about Hopin at the moment. We're powering now all the sort of real time experience stuff within Hopin. Um, so really, wherever wherever as a developer, you need to deliver a real-time experience, um, there, there's a requirement there to stream data from your services to your devices and from your devices to other devices. So if you think of sort of like chat, chats very much peer-to-peer communication, you know, we provide the sort of network and platform for developers to do that. Or if you think of big sporting events, it's, um, you know, streaming updates from a maybe a stadium through to millions of fans. We actually just completed the, Australia Open, which um, finished a, a week or so ago, so we were doing all the live scoring and commentary for all the fans there. Um, so that's what that's what Abley does. Um, um, but as I kind of mentioned, it's it's, it's quite technical because we're our, our customers are developers, and and I love it because I'm a developer selling to to people who are like myself, and and that's what pretty much the whole company is. It's all developers helping other developers, um, which is which is great. Yeah.
0: Um. And how did, I mean, obviously we will go through the sort of the backdrop of how you sort of, you know, got into the world of technology. And as you say, talk about some of your your previous companies you've worked at and even ones that you've owned and, you know, successfully sold. Um, how did the idea of ably come about in the first place? So, and, and has it, I suppose, in terms of your initial idea for ably is it, pretty much continued into what it is now, or has there obviously been a lot of changes to what uh, your initial thoughts of what the company would be?
1: No, it's, um, I mean, look, there's a lot of things where you can look back and with hindsight say we've made the right decision and we probably forget the wrong ones um, to some degree, but um, no, the vision, I mean, what happened was I, I mean, I've always been very entrepreneurial and always kind of liked creating businesses and, and building businesses and I, although I'm, I'm, a, I'm an engineer at heart I, I like I, I don't know I've always leaned towards sort of creating and starting businesses and so after I sold my last business in around 2012 which was e-consultancy um, I kind of wanted to take some time out and relax and of course that didn't happen because it's just the nature of who I am and very quickly fell back and see well what's my next business idea going to be and so I started looking at a bunch of ideas. Um, one of them was in the dating space, so very consumer focused. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it, so yeah. you know.
0: Was you the original Tinder inventor then, was you?
1: <laughs> well, the irony is, is that I, I'd love to show, I, I've got a friend, he was the one with the idea, so I was the tech side of it, so it was his idea. Um, but what he had wireframed and he had built a wireframe of was tinder back in the day and i i did actually build a prototype and decided that it was too crowded a space to enter into and pulled out um, and he still he still riles me about that because he said, we were before Tinder. My well, wireframes are exactly the same idea. But of course, the reality is, as most businesses succeed, there's probably another 50 people doing the same thing. And it's not just the tech. It's not just the platform. It's about the marketing and go to market and how you bring it. So I, I like to at least make myself feel slightly more comfortable than that. There were probably other Tinders starting at the same time that didn't succeed. But what I saw was, you know, so I started, because of being an engineer, I started to build prototypes and I started to look at what it is. And the thing that I discovered was that all of them, there was this current, there was, a, there was an underpinning sort of common theme between them, which was the more you could deliver applications and, you know, on your mobile devices and in browsers that gave you more of the real world experience inside your applications, um, the more likely it is you would stand out from the crowd and have an impact and create some more engaging experience. And a large part of that was real time. So how do you, instead of kind of having to reload the page and refresh things, how do you, if you're doing some kind of dating app, how do you kind of show activity of other people looking at your profile in real time and chatting? And that's what made it engaging, not just sort of the static experience. And, and the thing, the reason why I started Abley was I started to notice that across all the different ideas I was developing and exploring and building prototypes, they all had a real time requirement. And then I started looking at, well, what? How do I solve that real time requirement? And being an engineer, my first and often the wrong thing to do was say, "I'll just build something myself." And I did. Then I thought, well, hold on, that's actually not the right route to go down." There's plenty of open source and cloud solutions, and I looked at those. Um, and then, then I started to notice there was an like sort of a, a, a sort of major floor and pretty much all of the solutions that existed which is they were all designed around the idea that you in the sort of old world of you you know client server model you serve up an application and then you augment it with real-time data so if you think of something like gmail was a brilliant example of this you would load up your gmail application um you know so in your browser and then gmail would use and they were one of the first pioneers of sort of real-time web technologies they would use um sort of a, a long an you know, open connection to kind of send you, you know, to notify you that oh, yeah, new, new emails arrived. But like if that new email didn't arrive, that notification, sorry, it didn't arrive, it doesn't undermine the experience. You've still got email, it still does pretty much everything you need to do. Whereas if you think of sort of um, an application like Google Docs, if you're collaborating on a document and people are getting different views of the same data and you're editing it at the same time, it's fundamentally broken, you can't do that. So what we, what I saw was that real-time data um, if you wanted, if real-time data was going to underpin the experiences that people would, would have, then all of those solutions weren't suitable. And that was the problem we set out to do, was saying, um, and that's why we shifted to actually saying, well, if I can't solve this problem as a developer, how are other developers going to solve it? And so my business idea shifted from building a B2C or B2B idea to a B2D, like a business built for developers. Um, to help them deliver these new wave of applications, these new real-time applications. And like, we've seen this a lot, like, um, I think a fantastic example is Figma. So Figma um, entered an incredibly crowded space, um, you know, in the design space. And you have got Adobe and Envision and, and people like that have been around forever. Um, and they, they brought a collaborative first, real-time collaborative Design application to the market that suddenly all developers, I mean designers, were like, "Wow, this is amazing! This is a much better experience." Um, and I and 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 so there's been lots of proof points proving that you know real time really does make a difference. And you know the hopins and companies without like that emerging where they've taken these remote first approaches, they need what you know to deliver these. They need this real time communication layer, and that's what we set out to do. Was if we provide that real time communication layer, developers can kind of build these sophisticated applications without solving all the hard problems that we've had to solve um so yeah so that's that's where the business idea came from and that vision hasn't changed like the vision is still that we believe real time will underpin a large proportion of the digital experiences consumers have um and the technology to do that is hard and um and that our job is to take away that complexity so that developers can get on with building applications
0: and and, and how did inter- was it just you and your um uh, business partner at the start or was there a few of you that, or was it just you know, I take it, did you used to work with your business partner before or how how did that sort of relationship come about? And then those sort of early years, I suppose, of of building Ably?
1: No, Uh, what happened was, um, so I sort of came across the idea and um, I then sort of went to go find a co-founder, sort of a CTO, even though of course I was a CTO and pretty much all my roles before, um, I did want a technical partner for for the you know uh, to, to start the business. So I found Paddy, um, who, to be completely frank, without Paddy, the business wouldn't be where it is today. Because if I had engineered it with my knowledge, it would have we wouldn't have achieved what we needed to achieve. And you know, he brought that you know, it's kind of Doctor Paddy Byers because I got a compu- you know computer, uh, doctorate in computer science and you know strong math background. And actually, to build to build what we to build. We have to kind of solve complex distributed computing system problems and i was just way out of my depth and i've learned so much from kind of working with him um so he really is the brains behind why we've got something different um you know i think that and um, and something that's 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 hard to 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 replicate um no so i did we we nicked a few people from e-consultancy i say nicked it's not quite true they a lot of them left and then and then you know then came to Abley. so it's not it's not quite that not quite actually that we nicked them but um, now there's there was you know there's been one person simon who also i mean most of the people in our team who work on the sort of messaging fabric um, have strong mathematical backgrounds um, generally academic maths backgrounds um, so he he studied maths at cambridge also studied weirdly law at cambridge and then decided he wanted to be an engineer um, so he moved across with us, um, and then there were a few other people, you know, through the journey. Who, you know, some from econsultancy, some others. Um, I, I kind of, um, I mean, one of the things that we managed to achieve is doing an incredible amount for the small team, and part of that model was using freelancers. And so, in a way that other people I think haven't as much, in that there's a lot of fantastic developers out there who 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 maybe have a day job that isn't necessarily that interesting um, to them from an engineering perspective. And what we can offer is, um, what we could offer back then was work on really hard problems in a really interesting space on flexible time, you know, as you, whenever you kind of want to do it, as long as you're committing to some level of, you know, time per month. Um, and we could find really, really good people who, um, you know, were giving us, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 hours a month of their time, but, but you have lots of them. And so we managed to, because I mean, a lot, lot of the challenge of our business was we had to support 10 different languages and that's how you can kind of use our product. So we have client software across 10 different platforms that you can use Ableon. Um, of course, I'm not an expert in 10 different platforms neither is my co-founder. So we had, we found experts, you know, a Go expert and a Ruby expert and a Python expert. And, a, and then we just found experts in each of these and then we built these long-term relations I and mean, we still follow this model, um, which is quite unique, I think, and that, they're not full-time people, but they are, um, they're long-term. And they've been working, some of them have been working for us for four or five years and are still working with us. And, you know, it's been fantastic. It's a very, very good model. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And no, it's, it's actually very, very interesting to know and see how it takes like every company has got different ways of how they, they do it, but that's, you know, and that's a good advocate to, as you say, there are some amazing sort of freelancers globally. Um, and particularly yeah. now I think it's, it's, highlighted that fact with you know pretty much most roles and that i'm I'm in recruitment most stuff at the moment is fully remote um which has opened up yeah, a yeah. world of different candidates particularly within the, the tech world um who are you know very very useful and have got some excellent skills to to add to a
1: company um while they're juggling other things um yeah i mean i think that's um, i mean that's obviously the fundamental shift now is um i i, I think maybe we at the time were um, doing something slightly different because there weren't many people um, with fully remote positions. And so we were really appealing to the people who were probably more the type of people who'd be contributing to open source in their spare time. Um, and all of our open, all of our SDKs and the client software is open source. So, you know, we would ask them to contribute something that's open source and get paid for it. So it was appealing to a slightly different audience. I think now, you know, as you say, um everything's changed. I mean, everyone's remote first. Um, I'll say everyone's remote first. A lot of the industries move to be remote first and um, our, you know, what we are trying to do is we've got a bigger pool of people to go after. Equally, we've got a bigger pool, but other people like San Fran, you know, who are paying much bigger salaries traditionally um, are also going after. So there is that counter argument, um, but it's definitely a change. And you know, the idea of people having more flexibility, putting life first before work fantastic i mean it's great right like I, I mean i genuinely believe it's you know this has allowed people to say no life comes first and work comes second doesn't mean you're not you're not doing any less work you're just managing your work around your life rather than your life around your work um, and i think i think it's fantastic um so it's it's definitely a very positive thing
0: yeah and i've, I've seen you know even on your website and stuff and the stuff that gets posted you know there is a lot of emphasis on your people which you know what sort of I suppose, attracted me in to start looking into your company in the in the first instance is around, you know, there does seem to be a lot around um, even before, you know, the, the, the pandemic fully kicked in. And as you say, everyone had to work from home. There already seemed to be that sort of vibe uh, and, and sort of ethos with your company initially anyway. Um, was that something that, and it'd be interesting to get your take on how you guys have managed through that, period um you know when when the the pandemic hit and, and if that changed any sort of plans at all um but also how you know was that always in your in your thinking around as you say because that work-life balance particularly being in London it's not always been there um, and it's probably a little bit sad that it's taken a pandemic for other companies to realize that um was that always in? You know, did you always want to have a company that was quite flexible like that?
1: We started off a remote first company, and um, which was probably different. And so, Patty and myself met, but very rarely met. Um, I actually, when we started, AV, I moved to France. I was in the um, living in Montpellier at the time. Um, so, and I remember Jamie, who's still, who's now a full time designer, but was working part time for us then. He was based in Spain and we had Tony in Spain as well. And uh, I think Simon, yeah, so Simon was in the UK. So we were quite spread out originally as we started the business. And, that, and, and of course, all our freelancers were all over the world. Um, the freelancers who worked on the SDKs and things like that. Um, and I think it's created a, well, yeah. So I think, you know, from day one, we were always very flexible. And, and, and I think what that also allowed us to do was to think about from a recruitment perspective, Um, there's a certain quality of person you're looking for Is someone who um, is a self-starter, who manages their own time. And and the nice thing that I thought about Remote First when we used to do it was, um, you know, people, I remember it was always kind of interesting. People were talking about like, oh, do you want to see timesheets or get, and I'm like, I don't actually want to see anything. I don't, I'm not interested because, we measure you based on your output, that's it. Like we know if you're doing things and we know if you're not like you're either getting stuff done or you're not. And that is the ultimate measurement of like whether you're impactful. And so you just got away from the, you know whether someone worked at, we got a guy Lewis who still today, <laughs> he was in the early days then kind of went away and started working on a project called Flynn which was kind of like a Kubernetes competitor. Um, it was an open source Kubernetes, um, probably the, the most the most likely things to to beat Kubernetes, but, but unfortunately didn't have nearly as much backing as Kubernetes. Um, so he was working on that in the open source world and then has come back to Abley. But he was, he always said, I don't like, I like working in the evenings, you know? So he's based in the UK, he's based in Manchester, but he just wants to work late in the evenings and, um, and doesn't want to be online, and that's great. I mean, it's it's you know they can manage the time, but you know his output is is extraordinary. He's he's amazing, and you never question when did you work or how many hours did you work or why were you not online, because he gets stuff done. So I think it was a nice a nice precursor to that idea of we only really care about output and what people do rather than how they spend their time. What's interesting is as a business we then move to um, a model where um, we we hired a few people to start thinking about sales and marketing and they were in the office. So we set up an office in London um, and then we ended up in a world where some people were in the office and some people weren't in the office. And we had this sort of um, almost bifurcation around, you know, some people being treated as almost better class citizens in the ably world because they would get communication about what's happening. And I remember, I think that the tipping point for us was when we did our... I think it was our series a round. Um, when we, when we knew that we were sort of just closing that round and we took everyone out for drinks and we were like, well, to kind of as a surprise and tell them we had done it. And I realized the next morning that there were a whole bunch of people we hadn't told, like, because they weren't in London. And it was at that point we decided that actually we were going to change to being a London first business, not mixed, um, so we obviously still have people remote, but we just decided that everyone in future will have to primarily base themselves in, in the office, not always in the office, we don't care, but primarily. Um, but then of course COVID came and that whole thing changed again. So now what we're saying is um, we gone back to remote first, but, but with one difference, which is we believe it's really important people to be able to see each other um, meet to do planning, do social stuff. And so everyone with Abley has to have access to the office. Um, you can live wherever you want, as long as time zone wise, you, you have enough of a crossover with your team. And if someone says, hey, next week, I think we should meet to discuss, I don't know, do some planning or whatever it is, that's practical for you to get there and get back at your expense. Um, and that's the key thing here, which is a bit controversial, but actually I think it's the most fair way of doing it. Everyone gets paid the same. It doesn't matter where you live. I know Facebook have taken a different approach, um, but if you want to live somewhere where, you know, whether it's cheaper or more expensive, it does, we don't care as long as, you know, the idea is if you need to get to the office when there's a meeting, you do that at your, your expense. So it kind of makes it, I think, the reason we believe that's more fair is that people who choose to live in London because they want to be nearer the office um, aren't, you know, don't, aren't worse off than people who decide they're going to move to France and get their transport costs covered and maybe have a cheaper lifestyle. So it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think there's any right answer, but I think we thought that that's, the, that's actually the most fair approach for us. Um, so, yeah, so we have summits twice a year to make sure everyone gets together twice a year. I Let me mean, twice a quarter. Um, uh, well, it varies between twice a quarter and once a quarter. I mean, with COVID, it's all a bit up in the air right now. Um, and then, And then each team decides on their own when they want to get together and, and do things.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's to find that balance. I think it's the right way to, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely, I don't know about you, I'm itching to get back into an office environment and see people and meet clients. So um, I, I, yeah, I think having a, having a nice balance like that is I think is a way to forward, as you say, because I think it's certainly proved having one extreme to the other, they, that doesn't really work, you know, um, so, yeah, can't wait to, uh, I, I certainly can't wait to get sort of back into the office. Um, taking you back then, Matthew, um, how did you, obviously, you know, you're a, you're a technologist, you come from, you know, you've got a tech background. How did you, if, if, if you want to, let's take you back to, I don't know, even sort of university or school days or anything like that, to how you managed to follow the sort of industry you've end up doing and obviously that which led into e-consultancy which would be quite an interesting because obviously that was a that was a big part of your career
1: um and a big success as well quite a funny story really i mean well i think so maybe slightly unusual in that um i was pretty adamant when i went to school that i was going to go and uh, study music um was kind of quite passionate about um Music side of things, but when I, I changed schools at one point and was paired up with, um, uh, you know, you kind of get paired up with a buddy, really, because I changed schools. I was new, and I was paired up with a guy called Greg, who um, who introduced me to computing. Right, so I, I knew nothing about then, and he was, um, you know, so he's like myself, a geek, and um, and that's how I got into sort of programming, computing, and, and all of those side of things, and then. Sort of towards the end of school, I probably, I'd say I lost interest in in, in sort of either side of things. Um, left school, decided to take a year out, so didn't study. And then, um, whilst I was doing that, a friend of mine started selling computers. And this was back in the day when computers, you would build your computer. Like it wasn't you're going by, I mean, there were manufacturers, but it was very, very common to go buy the components and build your computer. So we, so he knew, I knew about computers and, you know, I was basically mooching around, not really doing much after school. And so, you know, we started building and selling computers. And um, we didn't do very well at it, but we did. We, you know, we, were, <laughs> we ran a little business selling computers. And um, the, how I kind of got into this industry was that um, one of the companies we were selling computers to, uh, there was someone there who said, oh, could you teach me how to build a web page? And I... <laughs> so I kind of said, yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, but didn't know how to build a web page and thought, well, it can't be that hard. So I'll go and learn and then I'll teach him how to do it. And um, and I had a very bad lesson because I tried to teach him how to do it, but didn't really have the knowledge. And I remember it being exceptionally bad. He never asked me to come back and teach him again. So it was a bit of a lesson there for me, I think. But, um, but that's kind of how I got into it. And I started building some web pages. And then um, I went to a company in in Durban, so in South Africa, from where I'm from. So there weren't many companies kind of in the space at the time. I mean, this is probably 96, somewhere around there. And they were a CD-ROM company. So it was back in the days when everyone used to make CDs and ship them out. And they knew that the internet was the next big thing. So they kind of had to bring someone in. And I was brought in as the expert, which is, you know, my expertise was three months of building web pages. and and what was amusing was, I remember there was an internal meeting where everyone was, there was a whole, I didn't know what was going on, I was told about it afterwards, but everyone was quite upset because they found out that apparently I was the, the most highly paid person in the company and I was only 18 at the time, so everyone was quite annoyed. But um, but in the end it was, you know, it was all fine, but it was just quite funny because the reality was is that no one knew how to do it. It was a whole new thing and, and so, um, there was a guy, Bruce, who I, I used to work with at the time. He was also in the web team. It was me and him. Um, and interestingly, Bruce has just joined Abley, um, in the last four or five months. So he's now working at Abley. Um, so, you know, we've kind of cut, my whole career is with him. Um, so he's also moved over to the UK and, um, yeah, and we, yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it. And then I decided to come to the, the UK, um, started doing some contracting and it's how I met Ashley. So, um, I distinctly remember he kind of came down, I just met him and he came down and we were working on, it was something for Channel 5 at the time. And he gave me some work to do and he said, I'll see you in a week. And I sent him an email the next day and said, it's all done. And he was sort of came down and went, well, it's clearly not. Um, And it was. (laughs) So he was like, right, okay. And then we only worked together for a few weeks, but we kept in touch after that because... He had obviously sort of kept this black book of people he wanted to work with. Um, it was his idea of consultancy. So he came to me and said, you know, do you wanna start consultancy together? We spent years, I mean, years and years and years building it organically, obviously no income. I was looking after the tech side of things. Um, he looked after more the commercial and the content. So obviously we were a digital marketing subscription business. So a bit like a Gartner, I suppose, a really mini small Gartner um, at the time, of course, digital marketing was just an emerging sort of discipline and there were no sub disciplines. There weren't like, there wasn't social media marketing and search engine marketing and email marketing. And so that's what really Ashley was deep in this and started to kind of produce content to describe what the different disciplines were and really quite pioneering what he was doing at the time. And I was building the subscription platform off the back of that. And, um, it was a long journey. I mean, we built the business organically. Um, I and mean, we, took on a tiny bit of angel funding early at one point. Um, but I mean, tiny in today's days. Um, and, uh, I mean today's turn, sorry. And, um, yeah. And, and we, we built the business over 12 years and eventually sold it to a company called central, which, um, uh, you know, it was a big sort of, they've got a whole set of publications and marketing products and subscription services. that kind of fitted nicely into their portfolio, um, but it was a fantastic journey. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, we got to about, about a hundred plus people, we had offices in New York, um, Singapore, Australia. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it was a fantastic journey. Yeah.
0: And how'd you go about, I mean, I mean, that must've been, I mean, that's an incredible feat um you, said, you know i'm just at the very 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 beginning journey of even trying to build a company at the moment but um i mean getting to that sort of stage and especially when you're on the verge of, of, of selling um i mean that must have been a, a massive buzz i mean but how how do you even go through that stage i suppose some of our listeners who might be you know you know fortunately and and, and uh well done to them if they're at that sort of cusp as well about you know they're they're thinking about selling or was, I mean, was it, you was thought you got it to a stage where you wanted to sell or was you approached or how does that sort of part come about?
1: Yeah. I mean, e-consultancy, yes, we were getting approaches. Um, I think different people have different sort of goals, uh, I think, you know, from themselves personally. And I think, honestly, I think that's what, as a founder, what you, you know, should be sort of thinking about is like, what do you personally want? Um, but, I mean, it was slightly different for me because I, because eConsultancy, we grew it organically and we both had to fund consultancy while we were doing other jobs at the early days. Um, what ended up happening is as consultancy grew, um, I remained the sort of CTO until I could no longer do it because there was too much to do at eConsultancy. And I was running, I actually had another agency at the time, a tech agency, um, and I was running that. And so it just became, I became the bottleneck. And so in the end we ended up recruiting a CTO and a team um, who took over everything from me. And so I actually stepped away from the business for about three or four years and then came back at the end to sort of manage the earnout and the product development and all of those sort of things. Um, because I'd actually, I'd, I'd sold my, the the tech agency. So I was kind of free again. And also the timing of the, the exit was pretty important. Um, but no, what we had done is, I mean, I think with e-consultancy is was, there were two factors. One is um, it was about ambition for what you wanted the business to be. So did we want to build an empire? And you know, to do that, we'd have to scale geographically properly. I mean, one of the lessons we learned was we did scale geographically, but UK was where we were hugely dominant and absolutely, you know it was our growth area. We really killed, we were a strong brand. know there was huge growth in the uk but to go even to go beyond that going to the us we thought we'll go to the us we opened up an office in new york but of course that's one state at best um but you're actually even in one city right so it's not quite the same and you just needed it's a very different proposition you would need a lot of funding very different business and i'm not sure we were necessarily um you know behind that idea that was the first thing the second thing was 12 years in, you'd been doing the business quite a long time. Now that doesn't mean you lose interest, but actually it was more that we had a bunch of very key managers in the business who had been at the business for five years. Um, and you, you you know that at that point, they are also probably starting to think about change and what they might do next. Um, and I think we were just in a sweet spot of we knew the business still had plenty of growth. Um, so we could get a buyer on an earn out basis, which means that basically, buying you, but they're paying you a multiple of what you can achieve in the next two years. And it gave everyone motivation, you know, the team, the people who've been around four or five years to say, we sold the business, but you know, if we work really hard for the next two years, we can all make quite a lot of money out of this. And it gave everyone some sort of focus around that. Um, So I think it was, you know, it was a combination of, um, did we think there was a huge amount more growth in the UK? Yes, but it would have plateaued at some point Um, unless we diversified the business model significantly um, or we diversified geography significantly. And I don't think we were quite ready to do that. Um, And I think we were in a place where it made sense for us to, you know, cash in and do something different. So both, both myself and Ashley, who we co-founded eConsultancy with, um, we've both gone on to do different things. Um, He's running a company called Guild, which is a sort of professional messaging application, um, we sort of, sort of uniquely between things like WhatsApp, LinkedIn, and these sort of platforms that's designed specifically for professional use cases, um, and so he's doing that. I'm doing Ably, and you know, it gave us a platform to do that. It was a nice way of exiting, crystallizing some value in the hard work, and then moving on. And interestingly, Ashley was one of the first investors in in, in Ably. So um, not at the not when we started the business, but just before we did our seed round he invested in Abley Um, and I distinctly remember it because we went to a meeting about something completely unrelated with a VC Um, and the VC, we were chatting about something and the VC started asking me about what I was doing and I started talking about Abley and the whole meeting got derailed because they started asking a lot about what I was doing at Abley and, and literally, (laughs) I think within a few days, because obviously Ashley, we have a very good relationship. We've been very good friends for a long time um, you know, very quickly afterwards actually invested in Navy. and to be fair, we needed the cash at the time as well. Um, but it's been fantastic. So he was actually helping a bit in the business in the early days. And then I've invested in his business. Um, and I'm acting as a sort of technical advisor for, you know, the guild. Um, so we are still working together and still doing quite a lot together, just obviously running separate businesses now, but I think selling the business gave us that platform to do something different, to get that passion again and something new. And I think it was a good, it was a very good move for us. Yeah.
0: Any uh, extravagant purchase after uh, after selling, <laughs> or any regrettable purchase?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. No, I was reasonably sensible. Um, I my view on life was that I've never really been motivated by money, and but, but the thing that um, I thought was most important is in man, with money is not to worry about money. So um, so. I think that's where money matters, right? If you're worrying about it, then, then it matters. But if you, so that I always, at least that's honestly, that's that's kind of how I always felt. So my my idea was to take the money and put it into something that generates an income so that I don't have to worry about money ever again. Um, and that's what I've done. So it's quite boring, to be honest. We put it into sort of a portfolio of commercial properties that gives a nice income and sort of, you know, and that's meant, and that's quite partly why you could do Abley because. There was no pressure to worry about getting an income from ably we did the right things for ably um i mean i invested a bit of money at the start to kind of fund ably but really you know we were focused on do the right thing for the business not get the product to market as quickly as possible and to be honest most people would say it was completely inappropriate that we spent three and a half years getting ably ready it took us three and a half years in the r d stage which was insane um, but um, if we hadn't done that, we would have built a product that is similar to what else, you know, the status quo, of what else is out there. And the, the fact that we were stubborn and focused on that and didn't have to worry about the money side of things um, meant that we can make the right decisions. So, um, no, nothing particularly extravagant, um, just basically a retirement policy, which is which is a nice thing to have, right? To not have to worry about, not have to worry about that, that side of things, yeah, which has been great. Okay. And that's, you know, that's, that's what I mean is life changing because it's, you know, you never have to worry about an, an income again, right? which is great. Yeah.
0: I was hoping to maybe entice you to some sort of uh, crazy story in Vegas, <laughs> but uh, maybe offline.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think I must've done some extravagant things, but I, 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 I can't think I'm sure we did. I can't think of it right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, go, go, You mentioned there in, in terms of, Uh, the seed funding and stuff certainly which you went through last year with um mm ventures and forward partners um that's always an interesting one to hear in terms of like how do you go about in terms of when you're going through that funding stage or when you're looking to get investors or you know was there or, or even when you're you're pitching um to investors is there any sort of certainly advice to those who are maybe just about to go on that sort of journey or or just about in that sort of area of trying to attract funding or go through funding or, you know, any any sort of advice or things that you've you've learned through your career or that's helped you when it comes to that sort of, um, when it comes to that situation?
1: Um, It's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you're... You're taking your conviction and trying to get someone on the other side of the table to believe in your conviction. And, and that's often not enough for an investor. Um, you know, I spoke to someone recently who turned down Hoppen as an investment because they didn't really believe. And, and, you know, obviously now they're kicking themselves. And it's really hard because the investors don't know. Um, I mean, well, I think it, depending on where you are on the journey. So when you're doing seed, it's really about getting them to believe in you and the idea and nothing more really because everything else is kind of irrelevant and as you go through the different stages and then series a is more around you know you've got some traction and now it's getting them to believe that you can execute on that um and series b now you know which is the stage we're at now and having early conversations it's um it's, it's really that it's belief that they can deploy capital that will now there's repeatability in the business that you can continue to scale things by throwing more money at it. Um, and, and I think at each stage, you're going to, you're just going to speak to a lot of people who just don't see your point of view and that's okay. Um, I, I remember the seed, I mean, our seed funding, we, I, what happened was because Ashley had my co-founder put money in, um, we, we kind of felt like we were more like an early Series A um, rather than a seed investment. And we tried to go around to the market to try and do an early Series A and, um, and it didn't work. I mean, everyone said no, everyone. <laughs> um, and that was quite demoralizing and you sort of change your perspective. And, and, and interestingly, we then spoke to Forward Partners, not really on the basis that we were going to pitch to them because um, I kind of as someone, I think maybe Ashley knew Nick Brisbane um, and there was a connection there, so we went to go see them and I you know and we we actually ended up doing a seed round it was a late seed round from a funding perspective, it was more of a late seed whether a late seed early series A I mean who knows what the difference is but um, but it was different because we were talking to a fund that is used to doing seed rounds, and we were just a mature late seed round, um, and they understood what we did and and believed in us and and backed us so um I think. I mean, the only lesson I think is, is, is you're going to get a lot of no's. Um, You, you have to believe in yourself, but you can't be confident. You can't be overly confident. Like, and that's, that's the point. It's like humble, strong belief. I mean, they, you know, it, they're, they are investing, especially in the early stages in the people. Um, And so, um i I think you know what what investors really want to see is is how you build your profile and give them confidence that you're the person who's going to make that happen um and and that's not easy um so you have to be very self-aware and i'm not i mean i you know we got turned down by every every person for the early series a so maybe i'm not that self-aware but i think that is ultimately the goal um i would say you know the 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 easiest route to do funding is always to have solid numbers behind it. Not that investors are, are spreadsheet investors. I mean, it's not so much that. It's that right now, and we did a we did some venture debt at the tail end of last year to extend our runway out because we wanted to just have a bit more flexibility around when we do our series B. Um, and it's more of an insurance policy. I don't think we need it, but we've got it as an insurance policy. and. Um, we've got good numbers now. We've got very solid growth numbers, revenue numbers, net revenue retention numbers. And the conversations are a lot easier (laughs) because you've got a good story, you've got some credibility of delivering and you've got numbers to prove it. And so I think the less you can rely on people to have that leap of faith and the more you can somehow focus on getting the right numbers behind your product, whatever those numbers are, might be, early indication traction, you know, not necessarily revenue. It could just be community engaging with your product or I don't know, whatever the metric is that you think shows that, a, the, you know, an investor says, ah, I've got some, got something qualitatively to measure this, to get me excited. And then I've got to value the person as opposed to the other way around. I saying, I've got no quality, I've got no quantitative sort of way of measuring this. So now my only way, my only hypothesis behind this investment is, I have to believe in these people, and and what you have to remember is that the, your investors have to go and present your their investment case to their to the to the investment committee, and what they want is they want to slam they don't want to look bad to the investment committee as well. You're talking someone who wants to bring winning deals to the investment committee that gets approval, um, so they sensitive to that as well, and it's the same thing, right? So you've got to remember that the more you can give them, more ammunition to, to go to their investment committee and say, you know, this is a strong idea because of this market data and this traction and sort of numbers behind it. Um, I believe it's just, it makes life a lot easier. Um, you know, so um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's that's, that's, a, that's about some of it, I think for now.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's always a, a, a question which it's always interesting to hear, hear how people are, uh, you know, going through that. I think it's, I think you've given some, certainly give advice there, because it's always, particularly for someone like myself and some of the listeners, it, it's always, uh, you know, you see it everywhere, don't you? See in the news, someone such, such and such is going through funding, such and such is going through funding. And, you know, it's not until you sort of, you're in it or, you know, you're looking to how sort of, as you say, the amount of disappointments and those people actually yeah. get is is incredible. Um, and even some of the, the the most biggest and successful companies um, who got rejected by by investors who are now are now thriving. So certainly the sort of oh, belong, course, yeah. believing in your own conviction, I think, is a and believing in your own product is. Um, but not being too too confident, I think, is good advice.
1: Yeah, I I, I think so. there's a balance, and I'm not quite sure where that line is. I mean, the only thing is, I think as a, as a founder and entrepreneur, you have to have I think you have to be on the side of um, naive <laughs> to succeed, because if it's a bit like, you know, a common investor question is what are you gonna do if Amazon does what you do? Um, and because Amazon, you know, can do everything really well and throw lots of resources. At it. And that's a kind of rather silly question because you could say that about every single business idea on the planet, right? Um, and if you're constantly worried about all the threats and the reasons why it's not going to work and the likelihood of succeeding and all of these things, you'll never get anywhere. And so that's what I mean. You have to. I, I do believe I'm. I'm sort of naive sometimes. I'm just self belief. You just keep plodding on. You keep trying. You keep working hard. Um, and you know, I, 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 I'm sort of not a huge believer in the that <laughs> there is a work life balance. And I absolutely believe that. And and for our team, you know, we we do a lot of work to make sure that people are trying to manage that. Um, but as a founder, I think there is an element of, um, it's just a hard slog, and you're gonna have to put a lot of time in and make mistakes and fix them, and, um, and, but you have to have self-belief and you're gonna get knocked down. And, and I think one of the things that maybe I'm lucky in and I don't know if everyone has this. Maybe I don't I don't know. Maybe I don't know if it's an entrepreneurial thing or a personal thing, but I can get knocked down. But the next morning I tend to wake up and I've sort of forgotten about it. And I'm I'm kind of looking forward forward again rather than sort of what went wrong. And I think that's part of it because again, like if you you know, if you looked at the questions, the reasons why your business shouldn't succeed, they will always be greater than the reasons why it would succeed. Um and and somehow people make it through and I think it is that just that determination to just you know want to succeed and, and keep going in it um, there is of course a point where you have to give up and, and I've had a few businesses where I've had to give up because it, you know the writing is on the wall you're not making progress and you're not getting there um, but that's okay too that's a that's a good lesson
0: optimist and a realist at the same time there you go <laughs> <laughs> indeed indeed um, I mean as we come towards the end of this I mean it's been it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, it'd be good to know. So what's, what's next then on the, on the horizon for, for Abley? What's, uh, obviously the, you know, the, the funding from last year, and you mentioned going through sort of series B, but in terms of the business, what's, what can we expect from, from Abley? Or is there, and, and is there anything else on the, on the horizon for you guys?
1: Um, yes. I mean, I think I mentioned we are, um, we are looking at funding at the moment um i mean well we have plans for funding this year um we've had a good a a good you know good growth last year and i think what's happened is our vision um we've had a lot of concrete validation of our vision because very large businesses like um you know hubspot and general motors and people like that have actually you know trusted us to solve these hard complex problems and that you know kind of concrete validation of that i think what's on the horizon for us is um, we believe that, you know, if we look at what everyone is doing with Ably as a platform, um, you know, we provide this sort of service layer that allows developers to really do what we consider to be state synchronization. Um, so if you think of, um, you know, a, a sporting event, you know, what's actually happening is there is this, game state of what's happening you know the score the commentary whatever it is at at the stadium and lots of fans need to have that state synchronized to their devices or if you think of a classroom environment you know it's synchronizing the state of like what am i looking at i'm updating a whiteboard you know synchronize that with everyone else in, in real time and i think the direction we're headed is is to think is to really try and think about more the problem space of what developers are solving with ably um, as opposed to, you know, just continuing to do more of what Abley does. So, you know, by doing that, we're we're helping developers to solve these complex state synchronization problems. Um, and I think that's kind of primarily where we're headed. Because I I think there's, there is a the one thing that's happened in the industry, which is the direction of travel that's already happening, is, you know, everyone keeps talking about the edge and edge computing and all of these things. And I and I I believe what's really behind this all is that mobile devices have become really powerful um what that then means is that data now needs to reside on the devices because if you want to have something really interactive and reactive um to application you kind of you you interact with your data on your mobile phone um that data in turn then goes to the edge and some data lives on the edge um and really what's happening is now all of our data is getting sort of spread out it's, it's no longer living in like one place anymore which used to be the sort of old client server model and um, now it's Data lives on devices. It lives at the edge. It lives in your data centers. And there's a whole new problem coming, which is how do you keep all of this data in sync? And those are complex distributed computing problems that you know what we've been working on for the last five six years. Um, and I believe the next wave for us is how do we, like we've done already with developers, take away their complexity? How do we help them take away their complexity of the next wave of distributed computing problems? Um, and that's the that's the sort of longer term vision of where we think Ably's going um but um yeah i mean right now it's it's just focused on the growth i mean we're sort of adding another 20 people in the next few months into the team so that in itself brings us challenges as i'm sure you know tom um so it's um you know that's 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 the immediate focus right now and then starting to think about our next wave of acceleration as we get more funding
0: nice well uh, i mean it's been this has been a really good episode i think the Listeners certainly you enjoy um hearing your story and, and and as I say I think you've got a i think you've got a great business there in Abley. um and I look forward to uh seeing a lot more um about Abley. and hopefully maybe even grabbing a beer with you at some point um would be nice <laughs> like... yeah it doesn't seem like it's that far away now so uh, all positive but thanks again matt really really appreciate that. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. Um, this is going to be going out on obviously, on all platforms, on Spotify, Google, Apple, you name it. And, and obviously I'll be posting that out on LinkedIn. Um, so until next time, thank you everyone.